Today, we begin with a deep dive into the fascinating realm of the five human senses. Oh, okay, okay, you got me. We really just wind up talking about my sense of smell. We also encounter an interruption that was caused by my beautiful, descriptive, dare I say, transcendent use of language. My wife chimes in for a moment just to let you know how absolutely amazing I am to share her life with, and we spend a moment observing Johnny Depp. Yeah, of course we do. All on the way to answering the question, how is faith like cologne? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. I think I've mentioned before in this podcast that I have an extremely developed sense of smell, which, as you can imagine, can be very useful. I can smell that food is beginning to spoil in the fridge well, days before most other people could detect it. And I've several times smelled electrical smoke that's led to the discovery of an electrical problem long before some significant issue might develop. But of course, there is a downside. I can sometimes be repulsed by someone's body odor who's standing near me, even when no one around me can smell anything whatsoever. And speaking of body odor, there's a spice, you've heard of it, cumin, that can make a dish taste and smell wonderful. But there is a very narrow band of tolerance for me. Just a little bit more of cumin can take a dish from a wonderful and desirable aroma to my feeling like I've had my nose shoved in the armpit of a sweaty lumberjack. Really, Dan? What do you know about a lumberjack? A sweaty lumberjack at that? Where do you even get this stuff? Don't ask me. It just comes to me. I think it's a gift. We really need to work on your definition of a gift. Anyway, back to my sense of smell. One of the byproducts of having an acute sense of smell. Byproduct? Let's call it what it is. An all-out obsession. I knew I should have recorded this episode while Sarah wasn't at home. Anyway, whether you want to call it a byproduct or that other less-than-neutral and more judgmental term, the end result is that I enjoy men's colognes learning about them, smelling them, and even upon occasion, well, even buying them. I'm going to have to agree with a lumberjack guy here. You need to work on some definitions. In this case, your definition of upon occasion. Well, before I take all the blame in this, truth be told, Sarah helped start this collection that I have. You see, not too terribly long ago, Dior came out with a new men's cologne called Sauvage. Now, you may not know anything about colognes, you may not recognize the name, but you've probably seen the commercials on TV because there have been a lot of them. I mean, a lot of them. Most of them pretty strange. First of all, perfume and fragrance commercials tend to be pretty strange to begin with, but this one takes it to a whole new level because it stars Johnny Depp. Now, as I said, there are a bunch of them, but one commercial... I remember, well, Johnny Depp is driving an old American muscle car into the desert. He comes to a stop. He opens the trunk. He pulls out a shovel and begins to dig a hole. The camera shows him throwing the sand with a shovel in a way that makes you feel, well, two things very strongly. One, that certainly this man has never, ever used a shovel before. 
And number two, that he probably spent several weeks getting sand out of his scalp following this particular commercial shoot. Now, in this commercial, after the digging is done, he takes off a weird necklace and drops it in the hole, and then they cut to a picture of the bottle, the bottle of Sauvage Cologne, and an exotic voice speaks over the background music and says, Sauvage Dior. So when this Johnny Depp-endorsed men's cologne by Dior came out, it hit the market and was, well, it was a bestseller almost immediately. And Sarah, a year or two after it came out, I think it was 2018, gave me a bottle of it for my birthday or for Christmas. Anyway, in a related note, sometimes I'll get a new fragrance, and I I don't particularly like it initially. And yet I'll discover that if I keep trying it on the second, third, fourth, sometimes fifth wearing, it'll start to grow on me. And I'll discover later on that I like it, and sometimes I'll even discover I really love it, and I see things in it that I didn't see or smell before. Interestingly, that never happened to me with Sauvage. Every couple of months, I go back and smell it to see if my opinion has changed, but it hasn't. To me, it's a screechy and kind of biting metallic quality to it. It sounds really pleasant, doesn't it? So why do I tell you this? Well, I was reading about some colognes online the other day, and someone posted that his favorite fragrance is Sauvage. He went on to say that he thought it is the most amazing men's fragrance available, and he dared anyone to admit that they didn't like it. Because though it is enormously popular, I will tell you there are plenty of people out there who react as I do to Sauvage. So I ventured in and admitted that I have a bottle of it. I've had a bottle of it for several years, and I keep waiting for it to grow on me, but it never has. It's just too sharp, biting, and as I said, metallic. His response to my post was that he wrote the following. Well, maybe, just maybe you are the exception, but I still firmly believe that anyone who doesn't like it is just a hater who's afraid of how popular it is and doesn't want to admit how much they really like it. Okay, so because he really enjoys something and he's discovered that there are those who don't really enjoy it, the only possible explanation, obviously, is that these people who differ from him, well, they don't actually differ from him. They're just lying about their opinion. Look, the world and our lives are filled with things for which many people have strong and abiding appreciation, even love. Things like opera, Bob Dylan, Marmite, sushi, bagpipes. That's an interesting list, isn't it? On the other hand, there are others who find those very same things to be less than pleasing. I myself love one of those five, and I don't particularly care for the other four. And look, let's take one of the items from the list. You can admit to not caring for the flavor of Marmite, which is a pungently salty food spread if you're not aware of what it is. And the world probably won't gather around to stone you. But admitting that you find the singing style of Bob Dylan to be far from pleasurable to your ears, well, that can be like insulting someone's religion. Matter of fact, speaking of religion... Nowhere else are small and often meaningless differences raised 
to fevered pitch of disagreement the way they are when we talk about, well, elements of faith. In this case, I'm not talking about people of different faiths. I'm really just talking about the disagreements between people of the very same faith. Several years ago, I went with a group of clergy who were working together at the church where I was in leadership. We went to a conference on leadership of a large parish. And like many conferences, we would meet in a large group, hear a lecture, break into small groups, and then discuss whatever we were told to discuss while we were in our small groups. Towards the end of the conference, this was after, I think, the third day, all of the clergy from our church, and there were five of us, gathered in a small breakout group with the clergy from a couple of other churches. One of our clergy was interested in how the other churches utilized communion, communion being the sharing of bread and wine. And in our tradition, in the Episcopal Church, we share communion every week, pretty much. We really like to, almost every time we come together for worship, include communion as a part of the worship. So one of the first clergy to answer this question from one of our clergy, he said, well, I'm sure we don't have communion as often as you do, but it has certainly increased a lot since I've been at this church. Before I came, they literally never had communion. And since I've been there, we now have communion pretty frequently. The clergy on my staff who'd originally asked the question said, oh, really, how often? And he responded by saying, oh, we have it about once a quarter, to which the clergy member who'd asked the question, I think involuntarily blurted out, oh, my God. To him, it was absolutely inconceivable, at least on an unconscious level, and that unconscious level suddenly became very conscious and verbalized. It was inconceivable to him that anyone could fully worship without having communion. There are lots of examples of this kind of thing. I've had plenty of parishioners in the churches where I have served who've had a profound and unshakable belief in the absolute sanctity of the pipe organ as the sole source of legitimate music for religious worship. They just literally don't believe that people who worship without it can experience the same level of spiritual exhilaration as they do. Then there are people who are deeply moved by attending worship services that are in Latin, and there are others who are moved by silent retreats and find it to be the most profound avenue of spiritual reflection. Still others love to worship where people wave their hands, move around, and speak in tongues during the service. And none of these, none of these are wrong, except when any of these people come to believe that God can only be encountered in the way that they themselves find powerful. Look, I know people who believe that dance is the highest form of art, and others who really, really love and are stirred by a beautiful sculpture, while others still find themselves moved by painting and others still moved by music. And I don't think most of us, no matter how much we are drawn to a single particular art form, most of us would not spend our time trying to make sure that the way we like to experience art is the only way that anyone should be allowed to be emotionally moved by art. And yet, and yet that's often what we do in the world of faith. You know, if I'm honest, I'm not really fond of religious music that's in foreign languages. Now, let's be clear, by foreign, I don't in any way mean that somehow English is more religious. Quite the contrary, I simply mean foreign to me. I just 
don't enjoy hearing music in a language that I don't speak or I don't understand. It's not that I hate it. It's just that understanding the words is part of what deeply moves me when I hear religious music. So religious music in German or Latin or Italian is just as valid as it is in English. I just tend to enjoy the stuff in English. And I'm not particularly moved by silent retreats. Even my own faith tradition, there were services in my church that had very little meaning to me. And yet our church continued to do those services, not because I liked them or they were meaningful to me, because I just said some of them were not, but people would tell me how powerful those particular services were for them, so we continued to offer them. As I believe I've said in a previous episode, I can't stand silent retreats. I wish I liked them, but I don't. And I don't fault people who like them. But I remember being told several times in seminary that I lacked spiritual depth if I didn't care for and find silent retreats meaningful. God moves different people in different ways. The fact that we don't all experience God as moving in our lives through the same things is neither a sign that some of us are wrong, nor is it an indication that we don't really understand God. It seems to me that it is nothing more than an indication that God created humanity with a dazzling and wonderful array of diversity that should be honored and celebrated because God created it. Doesn't it make sense that with all the different types of humanity God created, there would also be different ways in which those very same humans find to encounter the God who created them? Our faith differences are not signs of flaws, but a part of the diversity and breadth of God's creation that just exists all around us. We shouldn't all worship the same way any more than all trees should turn the same color in the fall. That's all for today. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get notified of future episodes. Also, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on YouTube. Just search for SkyPilot FaithQuest. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, my email address is dan at skypilot.zone. And as always, I'd love to hear from you. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. <laughs>